My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm Editor-in-Chief. Our editorial this month looks at the issue of minimum unit pricing for alcohol, which is an issue that's been doing the rounds for some time. Um, James, what's the background to this and what are we saying? Well, I think uh, the background is liver disease is one of those areas where we haven't seen any improvement, in fact, quite the opposite. Over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a 400% increase in uh, mortality. And that tends to be particularly in the young. And most of that mortality in the young is related to alcohol consumption. So there's some evidence from Canada, for example, where they've demonstrated an association between pricing a unit of alcohol at a higher rate and seeing as a consequence of that a reduction in mortality from alcohol consumption. So the association was, I mean, it was observational study. They, they put the price up and looked to see what happened to mortality and showed that there was, or, or observed that there was some cause and effect. And in this country, minimum unit pricing of alcohol has been on the cards for some time. But what's happened to it? Yes, yeah, so in 2012, amongst lots of other personal commitments the Prime Ministers have made and politicians have made, there was a plan to introduce minimum unit pricing. That, however, hasn't happened and, and there's been a complete U-turn from this government. Interesting enough, in Scotland, the Parliament there voted for a minimum price for alcohol and at the Currently, that hasn't been put into force because of some legal wranglings between the Parliament and the whisky lobby in Scotland. So currently in the UK, there isn't any any sort of active unit price sort of maintenance or increase as such at the moment. But, but the intention would be, or the idea would be, that if you introduce 50p a unit as the standard minimum price for which you cannot sell it below, that would not affect kind of the high-end luxury going out for a meal and having a nice bottle of wine cost of the, because already the cost of the wine is will be more than 50p. But it will affect the very cheap, readily bought, high concentrated alcohol that tends to be overused by the very young or um, the chronic drinkers. Exactly. I mean, because we're paying a lot more than 50p for a unit for most wines, most beers, certainly any any alcohol that you tend to drink when you're out, the the area that a minimum pricing system hits are the high alcohol intake, white lightning, ciders. In fact, we did a little thing, didn't we, where we looked at the price of white lightning, £2.99 for two litres. If we had a minimum pricing of 50p a unit, that would then be £7.50 for a bottle of, of that. So you can see what a difference it would make to those sort of... Uh, those products, which basically I think it's well recognised, are the ones that are targeted by people who are drinking hazardously. What are we calling for? Well, I think we're just saying, look, uh, actually, we've got some good evidence that unit pricing, uh, minimum unit pricing works. Okay, it's an association in Canada, but it seems to make sense. It doesn't look as if it's going to have a big impact actually on uh, anything other than reducing hazardous drinking, which which must be a good thing, given that liver disease is one of those areas that is increasingly a problem for the health service. And it is the one intervention that the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence recognises that if, if you're going to do one thing, changing the price is likely to be the most effective. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, our first main article this month looks at uh, developments in the management of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. This is a condition that we think, or 
up to now is is regarded as as fairly rare and not that common in in primary care but worth reflecting on changes over the last 20 years in in how it, how it's managed so what are the sort of interventions that we have got on offer at the moment and what's changed yeah so this is quite as it says this is a rare condition i whether this is right or not i don't know but i i have an inkling that it's increasingly commonly diagnosed certainly in my own practice i'm seeing more cases of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis than the current instant levels at five i think the instance levels they say in the uk is five thousand a year but i you know i must just have a a funny group of patients i suppose but i i just wonder whether it is increasing instance the issue with this though is it's got a nasty prognosis the median survival is only three years and the five-year survival rate is around a fifth so this is a nasty condition and really up until now we've only had a palliative approach to this we've only had drugs that we use to deal with the dyspnea or with the breathlessness or with the cough we've not had anything that actually has any impact on the disease itself. So we use the article to talk about the palliative or supportive care that you can offer. Much evidence for any of the interventions? Well, surprisingly little. And of course, the, the two great sort of standards that we or bulwarks we tend to have in these sort of cases like oral steroids, you know, high doses of prednisolone or oxygen therapy, both really don't seem to offer very much for most patients. And now the, the, the recent innovations is two drugs that have got orphan designation by the European Medicines Agency, which means that they've been developed for conditions with limited numbers of, of, of patients. Two drugs that have been launched recently, perfenidine and nintedinib, as they both launched as orphan medication. Outcome data for them? Well, this is... You know, this is disappointing. You don't want to put a downer on things. But, um, you know, these two drugs seem to have an impact on the decline in patients' lung function. So it doesn't stop the decline, but it slows the decline. But looking at the big stuff you want to show, which is a reduction in premature mortality, no evidence that they have any impact on that at all. So these are not disease-modifying drugs, perhaps, in the way we might have liked. Certainly in the way they're being used at the moment. So you could measure something in terms of lung function and say that your chance of it declining is it, w- it will be slower than if you did nothing or gave placebo. Yeah. But we don't know anything about exacerbations, nothing on all-cause mortality. No, nothing at all. And in terms of cost? What? Well, we're talking about a drug that costs £26,000 a year. So this is an in, you know very expensive drug. And for, the, for a condition that has such a poor prognosis, you've got to ask yourself, is that the right place to put your resources? I mean, £26,000 per person would would pay for a lot of nursing and supportive care to a family, which might be much better at making that person's quality of life better for them. So at the moment, perfenidine's been through National Institute for Health and Care Excellence and has been through the Scottish Medicines Consortium and has got the green light to be used, so they've done their cost-effectiveness analysis. But interestingly... Both agencies have agreed with the manufacturer that the drug has to be provided at a lower cost. So this 26000 is, although it's the list price, isn't the price the well, NHS. Well, that's right. They're doing one of their sort of quiet arrangements, and we don't know what the cost is to the NHS at the moment through that arrangement. But clearly the 26000 was a was going to be a barrier for, for NHS procurement. So at the moment, there are some innovations, 
but it looks as though they are fairly limited in terms of benef- patient benefits. It is, and this is such a difficult area because you know you want drug companies to invest and work on areas such as this because for the patients with this condition, it's it's you know much much worse than a diagnosis of cancer for many of them, and so you want investment, but. You know, when you've done that investment and you have some drugs which really have very little benefit, you know, it's very difficult. But you have to say, really, we need to think about whether it's right to, in, to invest in those drugs. So helpful for people to get a sense of the, the, the scale of the benefits and, and the limitations. Indeed, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. And the second article this month is, is another respiratory intervention. This is umaclidinium, which is a long-acting muscarinic antagonist that's used or is licensed for use in COPD. We've had a spate of new drugs for COPD over the last couple of years. This is, I could say, yet another uh, in- inhaler. Any striking differences from any of the others that have gone before? So here we are, yes, we, as you rightly say, it's another Me Too drug. We've got, obviously, teotropium was the one that came onto the market some years ago now. We've, we've got glycopyronium and aclidinium. And now we've got this new one, eumeclidinium. It's a once a day and it improves FEV1 when it's used. They All the studies always look at the trough level of FEV1. So it's the level of your lung function just before your next dose is due. That tends to be the sort of proxy outcome measure they use. Obviously, that's important to patients sometimes in the sense that it gives you an idea of whether it makes them feel better, less breathless, and we look at quality of life indicators as well when we're looking at these drugs. And obviously the other areas that we should be looking at with COPD is things like exacerbation rates and admissions to hospital and sort of perhaps bigger outcomes like mortality. But for the regulatory hurdle, getting a drug licensed and onto the, the UK market, most of them will show or try and show that they have a clinical and statistical improvement in these measures of lung function, which typically is around 100 mils in terms of FEV1 just before your next exactly. dose. Exactly. So this does that. Yep. And then the other function, the other outcomes, quality of life, St George's respiratory questionnaire, and transitional dyspnea index. Again, some evidence that it does something. That's right. Some mixed evidence there. So St George's questionnaire. Yes, there is a statistical and clinical benefit that you can demonstrate in in the studies that have looked at that. The TDI, the, the transitional dyspnea index, I think we had one study that showed no benefit and one that showed sort of some benefit. So it's a bit sort of hit and miss with that one. But obviously enough to pass the regulatory hurdle. Got it. Got its license is available. Harms? Well, this is an anticholinergic. All anticholinergics are those drugs that you just think be careful, particularly in the frail and elderly. We're particularly concerned around drugs used in COPD and cardiovascular risk. We've had a shadow overhanging short-acting muscarinic antagonist for years, ever since I think JAMA did a systematic review in 2007 or 8 that's first picked up this increased mortality in patients taking this class of drugs. We've then since then had the concerns of the MHRA on teotropium with the Respimat formulation. Teotropium in the handy inhaler, we've got quite good safety evidence based on the Uplift study, which was a four-year randomized control trial. And the problem we have is that with all these new Me Too anti-muscarinic drugs, we haven't got that data. Very often they've excluded patients with heart disease from the studies or they simply haven't been long enough. So there is a shadow overhanging all the muscarinic antagonists because of that really, but particularly the new ones. And as with most of the other ones, 
it's just a standard warning. Be careful of patients who've got existing cardiovascular disease and particularly arrhythmias. Absolutely. And I think the big warning is that these patients take these drugs for symptoms. And the risk is that they take them in the morning, they get more symptoms later in the day, and they think, oh, I'll take my, my teotropium or my acridinium or my umiclidinium or my glycopyronium again. And, and I think one thing we must do as clinicians is point out to these patients that they should only take them either the once or the twice as advised by the label. These are not drugs they should be using like short-acting beta agonists or short-acting muscarinic antagonists. Stick to the dose and don't Stick don't to increase. the dose indeed. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, uh, let's just pick up one item from DTB Select this month, which is the review of the safety of high-dose ibuprofen and concerns over its its cardiovascular effects. With reasonable body of evidence now, I think probably everyone is aware that non-steroidals and cardiovascular harms, well-defined with things like diclofenac, and trying to avoid that. And at the moment, the safest non-steroidals from a cardiovascular perspective appear to be naproxen and ibuprofen. This review has looked at doses of 2,400 milligrams and above, and what have they concluded? So this is quite it's interesting, really. So we, as you say, if you buy your ibuprofen over the counter, your 200 milligram tablets, they'll say take no more than six a day, which is 1,200 milligrams. But if you look in your BNF, you'll see that actually you can take double that as a dose. And they've compared the two, and what they found, perhaps, perhaps not unsurprisingly, is that the higher dose is associated with increased risk on a par with the other anti-inflammatory such as diclofenac but the lower dose 1200 milligrams per day does seem to show no increased risk in cardiovascular risk at those sort of doses. So the new advice over the use of over-the-counter products will be to stick to that maximum of 1200 and not to go any any higher. Exactly and I think where we as clinicians have to be aware is that we might have heard the headline that ibuprofen is safe but it's safe at the 1200 dose. If you start using it at bigger doses in patients, you are actually simply putting them at the same risk as you would if you were using diclofenac. So you've just got to be aware that there is that issue with the higher dose. And also perhaps be aware that patients who may be prescribed it, you don't want them to be doubling up with taking over-the-counter ibuprofen as well and increasing their risk even even further. So it's about making sure that people are very clear on on the risks and harms. Indeed. Okay. Thank you very much. To read these and any articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments, suggestions or criticisms, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. Thank you very much.